the more you get to know the millennial generation, the Gen Z, they're incredibly passionate uh, about Christ. They really are, in, in some ways, much stronger in their faith. And what we're seeing is, you know, 7%, 7% of Gen Z who are regularly attending church can articulate the storyline of the Bible. The Christ-centered Orthodox Church is going to have to be um, much more underground. And when that happens, there will be an explosion of the Christian faith. Hey, everybody, want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard and man does it get hard sometimes. That is why we do what we do in these podcasts. My name is Mitch Schultz, and I am your host for these podcasts. I'm also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. I love today's topic because it reminds me again that we need to stay connected with this generation. I am 58 years old, and I have children who are in my uh, in their 20s and a granddaughter who is four years old. And I'm constantly aware that as I get older, the space between me and this generation is getting wider. Of course, it does help to have grandchildren. In fact, that's probably a motivation to understand uh, the younger generations, the generations behind us when we have uh, a number in our family who make up that generation. And uh, I really believe that that keeping in touch with culture and the younger generation is essential. Uh, We can't hide under a rock. We can't ignore what's going on. There are sometimes things we don't like, and it's easy to just say, well, I'll just uh, kind of ignore it. It's hard to ignore. It's shaping our society, and it does impact us. Um, When I'm old, and this strikes me sometimes, or as I get older, uh, it's this generation, what we call the Generation Z uh, that's going to be making decisions about me. <laughs> so that's perhaps one reason that we need to be aware of what's happening with the generation that'll decide what will life will be like for us. Generation Z is that generation, there's disagreement as to when it starts, the mid-90s, late-90s. Josh McDowell uh, Ministries has a, an excellent article that I'm going to post on my website that talks about this generation. In fact, he gives 10 characteristics about this generation that uh, really are helpful. And again, I won't go through those, uh, but uh, he does talk about how this is described as the selfie generation, the iGen, the post-millennials, the app generation, the trans generation. And I'll just touch on a couple things he says, but again, I won't go through all of these. But it's the most diverse generation. This is the last generation in America that will be majority white uh, it's the least religious identification generation. In fact, in uh, 1966, 6.6% of incoming freshmen reported uh, being unaffiliated with any generation. In 2015, nearly one-third of all incoming college students reported not identifying with any particular religion. Uh, it's the blurry generation. Uh, technology has blurred the lines between home and work, study and entertainment, public and private. Uh, Gen Zers have a different experience of family, same-sex households, working moms, stay-at-home dads, etc. They're the loneliest generation. Uh, they're an individualistic generation. And again, you can go back and read about this in, on our website. Uh, again, an article by Josh McDowell Ministries. Well, I have a, a, a rich privilege here, an opportunity to interview a man who is an expert. Uh, he's also committed his life. He's passionate to serve this generation. His name is Daniel Bowl. 
that is Bowl, B-O-A-L, like coal, he says, but with a B instead of a C. And uh, he is the, uh, the director of youth ministries for the Christian Missionary Alliance, the director of Alliance Youth. And the conversation we have today is, uh, is fascinating, it's fast-moving, and I think you'll benefit greatly. You'll be challenged and hopefully passionate uh, as he is and as I am becoming uh, for uh, how we should be reaching and understanding the Generation Z. So here we go. Let's go to it right now. All right, I'm excited today to be talking to Dan Bold. So kind of you to take the time out of your busy schedule to do this podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. I'm excited to be here. Anything that helps pastors in the church understand the next generation to a healthier degree, I'm all about it. So yeah, yeah, great. Well, that's why we're doing this. Um, you are uh, specializing in in youth ministry. Uh, in fact, your title is the director of Alliance Youth. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's actually longer than that. <laughs> so the, okay. the title is Alliance Youth Ministry Consultant, comma Director of Alliance Youth. So it's this incredibly long, ridiculous title. But the yeah, I think someone it, I think someone did that as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope so. But the reason it's the Alliance Youth Ministry Consultant is because from a national level. Uh, my role is to not tell churches what to do. My role is to come alongside sure. local churches to hear about what God is already doing in their midst and mm-hmm. help them think of creative ways to maximize their own given potential. Uh, so I love that part of it because the director side feels very top down, right? I'm going to tell you what to do. I know everything about youth ministry. Listen to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the truth yeah, and they is, won. they won't they listen. Wouldn't. They wouldn't so. listen, and, and I don't know everything about it anyway. So, <laughs> there's so many people in the local church that are a lot smarter than I am, so I like. Yeah, to and, and being a being a director in a denomination is 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 unique because you are more a collaborator and encourager. I mean, you can't. So. It's not set up to. It's not an authoritative structure at all. It's it's no. more instead of consultant. Well, tell us uh, how how did you end up here? And again, you, you started to, but describe a little bit more what you do. And incidentally, the reason why I, I reached out to you, you, there was a large conference. Not everybody who listens to these are, are, are Alliance people. Uh, in fact, my joke is uh, two listeners, one's Alliance, the other one is not. Um, but, uh, you, you were speaking at a large uh, event called Life Conference, which is held every, I think, three years. Yeah. And uh, you, you spoke, and I, I listened to a lot of the messages, and I, I shared with you before we hit record. What impressed me is that you were in the Scripture. You stayed with the Scripture. Your talk was based on Scripture. And just want to, again, affirm that, uh, you know, mm. as others are, are hearing that, that that's a, uh, that's a passion of mine. And I loved it that a guy who's, uh, you know, a, a recognized leader and influencer in, in youth ministry has a high commitment to the Word of God. So just wanted to affirm that. But yeah, how did, how did you end up here? Tell us a little bit about your, your story. Yeah. You know, the crazy thing is I never wanted to be in youth ministry. Uh, like that's never a thought that ever crossed my mind. What I wanted to be, I wanted to be a weatherman. Uh, that's what I really <laughs> wanted to do. I know that that sounds crazy, but think about it. It's the only job where you can be wrong half the time. and Nobody really cares. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was like the ideal uh, kind of a thing was really into broadcast journalism, wanted to go to school for that. In fact, when I went uh, off and did my undergraduate, I have an undergraduate degree in communication uh, because I thought that's kind of the direction that God was going to have me. Um, but, you know, when I, when I went off school, I started getting engaged in a local church. So at 18 years old, I started serving alongside uh, a non-denominational church in, in Chicago, and I was working as 
was a volunteer in the youth and kind of that became a table talk leader. And then out of leading some table talk discussion on the scripture of the morning, I stepped into an internship when I asked me to be an intern in youth ministry. And I said, does it pay? <laughs> and they said, yeah, it does, but not much. I said, hey, it sounds good. Two and a half years uh, later, I was on staff at that church as the associate you know, youth pastor uh, with no uh, no intention of being in youth ministry, mm. just sort of landed in youth ministry, loved it. Uh, and then even when that time came to an end, I was going to go get my master's degree. I was still going to go pursue communication. So I have a master's degree in communication with all the intent in my heart and soul to step out of the church. I never once felt God say, you'll be a pastor. Mm. Uh, and so I was going to leave the church and it didn't matter where I went or what I did. God would not allow me to find any kind of employment outside of the local church. So finally, I was 23 years old and I realized maybe I'm supposed to be a pastor. <laughs> you know, and, uh, That's when I committed to being involved in local church. Uh, on, a, on a macro level, uh, I still have not yet found any evidence uh, that, I, that I can read in scripture where God calls people to the pastoral role. Mm -hmm. uh, he calls people to himself. He gifts and he equips people. He assigns them, you know, positions in the church. Uh, but this whole paid pastoral vocation thing, uh, I'm still questioning myself saying, Lord, are you sure I'm a pastor? <laughs> I, I don't no. know as much as I just really love the next generation. Well, it, I love yeah, I, I love Jesus. that. Yeah, I love that because it's, it's practical and, you know, God works through the moments he, you know, he's providential. And in that moment where you were, you were describing the moment where you were, you were teaching a, a passage or teaching from a passage and it sounded like it excited you. And that was the spark, right? That, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yep. I love, I love, I love being in God's word. I love being a teacher of God's word. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the apes gifts, the apostle, the prophet, mm -hmm. evangelist, the teacher, the shepherd, there's without a doubt, I'm a small a cause the office of the apostle, in my opinion, is not, it, now for today, but that's a whole other thing. And I'm, <laughs> you know? I'm liking you more and more. <laughs> but, but I'm a small, small A and a, and a, and a big T. You know, I, I love teaching God's word. So yeah, but that's I how I got that. into this. Yeah, uh, and truly, the communication stuff and God's providence, all the communication study stuff, has helped me become uh, a, really a student of culture and understanding how our culture is sending and receiving messages. So when you think about trying to contextualize the gospel for this generation. I probably have the best background in research and analytical experience to be able to do that because of the degree that God led me into. Uh, so that has been a significant degree of how I've been able to, to really just keep my passion alive and my engagement going uh, with the next yeah, gen. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, you, you, you shared quite a bit there that can uh, lead us into many different uh, directions. But I, I think to, to kind of sum up this part before we move on and and talk about some other things. I, I think it's really important what you share because a lot of times people are looking for some extraordinary supernatural affirmation to what they maybe are pressured to do or feel the pressure to do or wonder whether they should do. Uh, you, you said something really important. I think two things. First, the, the call is, is to himself, your, your mm -hmm. first call to him. And, uh, and then just to be obedient to that. And, and what was in front of you was a very practical opportunity to serve. It was, it was your passion. It was an interest of your heart. And it made sense and no doubt was affirmed by others. And, uh, and that is supernatural because God is working right. through the events. He's working through people. He's working through uh, just a good sense that, hey, this, I love this. I feel a peace about it. Others love it. There's an opportunity here. 
uh, I'm getting paid for it, you know, even those things. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, that, there, that's, there was no, there how, was no Damascus Road moment, yeah, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, real, real quickly then, how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, so uh, I was working at a church uh, in Minnesota. I was a youth admissions pastor there. Uh, and when this role became available with inside the Christian Missionary Alliance, I had known the previous two directors, uh, not real well, but I'd mm-hmm. been in contact with them through various ministry things. And uh, I, I felt that, you know, I think that's something I, I could do that I have a gifting in. So when I, when I called the national office and I found out about what this job entails, I heard the job description. I just, man, I felt it in my soul and in my heart. I'm like, yeah, this is a job that I was, I was designed to do at least for a season. So when I reached out to them, cause they, nobody knew who I was. Nobody's very few people know who I am now, <laughs> so, but then no, definitely nobody at the national office would know, nobody at the denomination knew who I was, that this was uh, the right next step. So God just in a very, uh, smooth and supernatural way opened up opportunity for me to come serve uh, the Alliance family as the director of Alliance Youth, combining some of my passions and backgrounds, uh, but also just some of the other additional giftings in terms of leadership and development. So it's been four years now, and uh, it's, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's fantastic. And you, tra- you no doubt you travel a lot. You're, sure you're seeing what the church is doing. You're meeting with a lot of youth pastors. What, yeah, what is- all, all over. Yeah, what are you sensing uh, to be the this generation's attitude towards the church? Yeah, so I think there's there's a misperception from the uh, I would say the Gen X and above uh, generations about how millennials and Gen Z perceive the church. They tend to think that this generation wants nothing to do with the church. That that's not true at all. In fact, the more you get to know the millennial generation, the Gen Z, they're incredibly passionate. Uh, about Christ, they really are in in some ways much stronger in their faith because they're they're growing up immersed in a culture that's not tolerant of Christianity. So if they're choosing the Christian faith or choosing to practice their faith, they're already choosing something that at their peer level is not a respected thing to do. Uh, whereas you know you could be Gen X builder uh, and older and. It was pretty culturally okay to be a yeah. Christian there was a level of of, relax, uh, of respect. Yeah at least ambivalence towards it. That's no longer the case. Is it? Right. Not the case. Now there's a pretty good degree of open hostility towards those who follow Christ, and especially for Gen Z. While they, they speak the language of tolerance, they have no tolerance for anything that declares truth, right? So that the gospel is truth, then the gospel is going to be essentially attacked. And these young men and women, they are attacked uh, for their faith, whether it's uh, you know online, they're attacked online, they're attacked face-to-face, very little of it's physical persecution at this point, but it's very much emotional uh, and traumatic uh, for some of them. But they're choosing Christ. And the thing that the, the big disconnect between the older generations and the emerging generations is the expression of the church. And so, you know, the, the expression of the local church, the Sunday morning, one hour long service, the small groups that happen around that, uh, you know, whatever it is, the, the way that we've structured North American church is just incredibly unappealing uh, to Gen Z and to younger millennials. Older millennials are, are still fitting the mold a little, but younger millennials and Gen Z, they want an expression of the Christian faith that looks more like community uh, and loving one another than it does like systematic programs uh, and disciple making methodology, you know, that's the disciple making methodology. They, they would be much happier in a church of 25 than in a church of 2,500. That's interesting. So that's because interesting. that's what they want. They want community. They want friendship. They want people who are going to love them and speak truth to them and who are going to encourage their souls, uh, and everything else. So do you, do you, 
sense then that that's the future, could be the future of the church, that they, it will be smaller churches made up of, uh, of this generation and that we could see the value of that, whereas in the past decades we've seen the value of large churches, mega churches, big movements. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's let's put it this way. There's a different values structure happening among among the Gen Z folks and the younger millennials than there are, uh, you know, than older generations. So, for example, there used to be a high value on a really nice facility, a place where you can do great family programming, you know, places for churches to come together and meet inside of, inside the building. As a result, you look at the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, you have these great massive church structures. And some are mega, mega, and some are mid-sized churches trying to be bigger. So they, you know, over-mortgage themselves trying to get a gym or something <laughs> like mm-hmm. that. Uh, and the, the building model, right? The value of this generation, they look at the building and they go, okay, so you're saying that building has a $17 million mortgage, right? Uh, and the reality is if there were 25 or 30 of us, all that had regular income jobs, you know, we're all making thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year. And we met in somebody's backyard, uh, and that overhead is only you know fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred dollars a month because that's their mortgage. But they're opening their home to you because and new and new grass home. once a year and, and new deal. grass. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but yet, let's say they can actually establish a tithing structure right within that system mm-hmm. uh, or a giving structure. Thirty people giving, or a third. Let's say we even get. Let's say that we have ten family units. Ten family units that are giving. Let's say they actually tithe, and they're, they're each given. $6,000 a year because they make $60,000 combined income. So now you have an offering of $60,000 a year uh, in a no overhead situation. So there's this, there's this financial competitive experience where they're going, well, why, why would we be building rich uh, and ministry poor when we can really have like no facilities, meet together in homes, or even rent a facility for three, $4,000 a month? And we can take our resources and do some pretty significant stuff. So even among some house church movements or even some new church plants that are going with rental facilities, uh, we're hearing stories of really these are older Gen Zers, these are like 19, 20, and then real young millennials, 20 to 27, okay, in that range. Uh, they're, they're literally just outright adopting children because they have the money. So if somebody feels like they need to adopt a child, like a young couple, like, hey, we feel led to adoption. They just pay for the child to adopt a child or for the family to adopt a child because they can't, right? And they see that as a much more meaningful expression of living like Christ than gathering in, on Sunday morning, singing three songs, hearing one worship, mm-hmm. you know, hearing a message and singing one other song. <laughs> yeah, that's really, really encouraging to hear. And, I, and I, I probably have seen that as well, that trend. My son is 25, lives in New York City, and attends a church there that meets in a school and he's, he's only been there a couple months, but he said, dad, it's a, everyone's young here. Yeah. You know, and it's yep. just, it's so real. So, so different. Well, this, uh, that, and I was going to ask you a question earlier and, and kind of jumped over it, but what excites you and encourages you and that I think you've shared that what, what burdens you about this generation? And then I'd like you to follow up, maybe segue into that of what you long for the, the church. It's so broad, but what the mm-hmm. church should understand about this generation. Yeah. So here's truly, here's my largest burden is that this generation is biblically illiterate. <laughs> okay. Mm. The so Z generation. Wh- yeah. yeah. The Z generation. Yeah. Mm. So when, when you trump movement uh, over knowledge, right. And let me kind of parallel this, the institutionalized church, the Christian Missionary Alliance, for example, we're an institutionalized church at the national level. Uh, we have standards 
for our pastors, right? We have an educational standard, a theological standard, an ordination or consecration standard. We can affirm that this person is equipped to handle God's word and teach faithfully. Sure. Uh, you have 25 to 30 Gen Z millennials meeting in a house. <laughs> you, the, the best teaching you get is the highest degree of knowledge that's, mm-hmm. that's existing in that room, but there's nobody there to affirm whether or not somebody in that room has a genuine sense of biblical literacy. And what we're seeing is, you know, 7%, 7% of Gen Z who are regularly attending church can articulate the storyline of the Bible. So if you can't even have people who are able to articulate the storyline of the Bible, they probably, while it's okay to get together and talk about scripture, they need somebody with real spiritual maturity and authority to exegete scripture for them, to bring them into a deeper love of God's word, to a deeper understanding of how he's working among the world. Um, and they, quite frankly, are much more concerned about the community than they are about the knowledge of scripture. So this, mm. this is where we get this relativistic nature of the Gen Z church, right? When you're very concerned about community and the principles of God's word, for example, love one another and also love someone as you would love yourself. Those are great principles of God's word, and you remove them from the theological foundation of God's word, then you can exercise the principles theologically wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, so, hey, uh, let's think for just a minute. I, I hold, because of my reading the scripture, it, to a historical sexual ethic about marriage and human sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I believe marriage is between one man and one woman. I believe the best expression of human sexuality is in a marriage relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. Now, if I take the principle, of love someone, you know, love your neighbor as you, or treat your neighbor as you like to be treated, or love someone as you like to be loved, uh, which is a great biblical principle. And I divorce that from the theology of marriage and family, or from the theology of God's righteousness and justice. Then in my community of 25 or 35 people, well, if culture says homosexuality is okay, then I say homosexuality is okay, and God is love, and God looks beyond those things. So our, our biblical literacy has led to a compromise in the execution of God's word and theology in terms of how the church should act. Uh, so that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary issue because we're seeing more and more churches and more and more of this generation walk down that road simply because they really don't even know what the Bible teaches on these things. Do you, do you see some pastor, youth pastors that are committed to systematic teaching of doctrine and theology and even helping the family? Because obviously it has to be reinforced or, or maybe primary in the home, equipping the family. What, do you, what are you observing there? Any stories that you can share on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of stories where churches and, and youth ministries are committed to teaching sound theological doctrine. They, you know, a lot of our churches, for example, Wisconsin, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, where there's high Lutheran and Catholic population, uh, there are uh, ministries very similar to confirmation. Sure. Right. So confirmation, it's a nine-month ministry program. You learn about the core tenets of the Christian faith. When you graduate that, you affirm your faith as a Christian based on what you believe the Bible teaches on these things. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a great, great class structure called No Limits. Uh, and this is happening at one of our churches in uh, Minnesota, specifically a church called Riverside Church in Big Lake, Minnesota. No Limits walks uh, really sixth graders through this amazing process of identifying the core teachings of the Christian faith. And when they walk out of that, they actually know the storyline of the Bible. They know key theology, key scriptures, and how to explain those uh, in their given culture. That's a, a very encouraging thing. And that course actually ends with baptism uh, because you, when you get through the entire teachings of the Christian faith, 
and you also understand your genuine conversion and you affirm the historical teachings of the Christian faith, then baptism is a part of that because it's the outward expression of the inward transformation and the inward beliefs that you hold. Uh, so yeah, they're doing a great job at that. Yeah. I, I'm encouraged by that. I, I happened to just uh, visit a, a youth group one evening at a church and they started out with a video. It was kind of a popular uh, spoken word type of theme. And, and the whole, the whole theme was, I mean, a lot of scripture after scripture about how amazing we, you know, you are, it's, it's, you know, to affirm again, how uh, beautiful you are, you're created by God. And it ended up with a, uh, what I believe is, is a growing theological uh, misunderstand or, or corruption of a of the the idea of redemption that uh, and it'll it'll be phrased this way that the proof of your worth to God is the cross that uh, if you want to know how valuable you are look at what He did for you well theologically that that there's I, that clashes with what you read in Romans three that we are we are corrupt uh, we are by right. nature objects of wrath. And, uh, and it, it, you know, on one hand, a message like that makes kids feel good, but I think it clashes with how they really feel, but, but I don't feel that way. I feel, I, I feel sad. I feel broken. Yeah, I, I feel, feel broken. broken. I feel but sinful. But feel... the reason you are is because you're a sinner. You are depraved, and that got, the reason Christ came, uh, and, and Piper, John Piper, has a great rebuttal to that theology, and I wish there was a name for it. The best I can come up with is ego redemption. Uh, yeah. uh, That's pretty good. <laughs> Piper's reaction was that the, what brings God the most glory is the fact that He died for us when we were miserable sinners. That's what brings glory to God. It has nothing to do with, yeah. for, with us. And uh, I, you know, are you are you hearing that kind of message? And how do we speak uh, to it? Yeah, well, I mean, the message comes out of the highly individualistic culture that we live in, right? If everything's about me, then Christ died for me. And while Christ mm-hmm. did die for you specifically, he died for everyone. But we really like to believe uh, or teach the very individualistic approach that, you know, how much does Jesus love you? You know, this much. And you put your yeah. arms way out like, like yeah. the cross. And that's, that is true. While you were mm-hmm. yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, but he did it as an act of redeeming all of creation back to himself, which you are a part of that creation. Mm-hmm. So um, as a result, here's what happens. It leads, it can lead, especially young people, into a very transactional form of the Christian faith. Because if, if Christ died for me specifically, then I have some intense obligation to be on my best behavior for him. And if I mess up in any way, shape, or form, then clearly I've disappointed Jesus to a high degree. He's not happy with me. Mm-hmm. If he's not happy with me anymore, then maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Yeah. So the, the love of Christ is contingent on you and your reaction, and it's not contingent on Christ and his work. And this is a dangerous place to be because obviously that, you know, that's, that's the law, right? <laughs> this is all about you and whether or not you can fulfill it. And if you can't, then you clearly aren't warranting God's grace. But the cross eliminates the law. The cross is grace unwarranted because mm-hmm. it brings God glory to give it to you upon your faith. Well, we have a generation of highly anxious young people who are very concerned about where they're going after they die because they feel like they can't please Jesus. And mm. they don't realize that they don't have to please Jesus. Yeah, right? Yeah. The, the thing that brings God, Jesus great pleasure is your faith in him. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. And this, this ego redemption thing uh, does set up for disappointment and disillusionment because, you know, hey, I'm worth so much. Christ did this for me, but I still 
I fail, and I, I agree with you. It can lend itself to uh, the feeling that you've disappointed Christ, and and it ultimately can lead to people walking away from the faith. Absolutely, know? yeah. There is someone intervening and teaching them right doctrine that we are we are forgiven sinners. Period. You know, you mess up, you go and confess it, and you're reminded that you're pardoned by by Christ. Mm-hmm. Re- related to this, um, how does this generation understand the gospel? Mm. <laughs> the gospel, the good news. How do they understand the gospel? I think. So, if you came to someone and said, "Hey, t- tell me what is the gospel? What would the average Christian Gen C Z say?" I think they would say that, that God loves you, and there's nothing you can do that would ever make Him not love you. I think mm-hmm. they would truly say that. Uh, I don't think they know how to express that or experience that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, what that looks like is total acceptance of everybody and everyone, no matter where they are. But that acceptance is, has no condition of submission to Christ or transformation. It's just blanket acceptance. So their understanding of the gospel in many ways becomes, Jesus loves you so much, there's nothing you can do that would ever disappoint him. Because there's nothing you do that would ever disappoint him. You can go on doing whatever you want to do, and that's totally fine because Jesus loves you. And you belong here, and we accept you here, and we love you here. Uh, and even if you're hurting, we're here to love you and support you. It's a, It's a... Well, what does Bonhoeffer call that? Just a cheap grace cheap kind grace, of yeah. uh, Easy grace, experience. Yeah. Easy yes. grace. Uh, without the need for genuine submission to Christ. I think mature, uh, genuinely mature followers of Christ who are part of that generation, they say, no, no, with a, a true following of Christ, a true conversion experience, there, there is transformation that comes with that. Um, but that's, and that, that's not few and far between. It's, it's pretty regular, especially as they mature and if they've been educated well. Uh, in terms of what scripture teaches, they see that play out in their church bodies a lot more. You know, one of the things that um, we, we find is, you know, I'm, I'm considerably older than you, but much of the things that we were concerned about in society kind of existed outside the church, or at least in the periphery. Now we're, we're dealing with it in, in the church, you know, the moral dilemma, I call it, uh, in society, uh, homosexuality, you know, all the moral issues, abortion, mm-hmm. things that. What what are you observing with that, and and how are you how are you seeing youth pastors? Even what's your role in speaking uh, to those issues? And you mentioned earlier that you know when we were talking about theological anchors or moorings that you know you believe in terms yeah. of error, it's this. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know even in in Christian colleges now, you are increasingly seeing kids coming in who. Uh, are are okay with this either personally or they're okay with others. It, there's a there's a kind of a relativism there, right? So yeah, how how do you speak to that? Uh, yeah, you know it's a complex issue because for them it, it's it's a very gray and muddled area. A lot of that stems from their biblical illiteracy, right, mm-hmm. uh, and their overwhelming influences. So here here's what's really good about this generation they have that other generations don't. They have such a high degree of empathy uh, that it's really quite astounding. They feel one another's pain because they've been exposed to that from the time they can remember, you know? And so, and they've been told that they're not supposed to hold other people's pain against them or to judge them or anything. So when they're walking and journeying with their friends, their friends are much more open about their internal struggles. Yeah, the conflict. tolerance message has not been all bad, has it? No, not no, not in any way, shape, or form. In that way, I mean, it's really cultivated this this intense degree of empathy. So here's what happened: 
because they have such a high empathetic capacity, their empathy will, will trump their truth, right? So this, this is the moral relativism aspect, which is if it feels better for me to love you or to look past you or to whatever it is, to whatever's going on in your life for the sake of just supporting you, uh, then that's more right than the truth that you need to change or be transformed by Christ in that aspect of your life. So, uh, you know, let, let's take alcohol, for example. Let's move away from other more. Let's just go. Sure. Alcohol is a prevalent thing in North America. It's very prevalent in our churches. Uh, you know, you go back maybe 30 years and it was a very taboo subject. Uh, but now today, you know, if you're a pastor, you're allowed to drink. I mean, you are allowed to drink alcohol. It's not a, in any way, shape or form, a theological issue. And I don't think we need to make it one, but I do want to move to the other side of this, which is in your freedom, uh, abuse is much more easier. It is a much more commonplace experience, right? Because you have freedom and you can consume, you now have opportunity to also have abuse be a part of your, your alcohol usage. And when regular abuse is prevalent, uh, then if you're in a Christian community and people see that, then they should be able to call you on that based on what scripture teaches. Do not be addicted to much wine. Mm-hmm. Don't give yourself over drunkenness. Be filled with the spirit. Whatever you want to do, find the scriptures and you should be able to exhort uh, one of your peers. However, uh, but because, because it's culturally accepted and we have empathy for this person who, who seems to be on a regular abuse cycle, uh, and the, the, uh, the border between entertainment and abuse is very thin, by the way, because there's mm-hmm. groups of Christians that get together for entertainment that corporately abuse alcohol, and they're drunk together. And that because they're all drunk together, they have no moral pin to hold each other accountable for the next mm. time. Okay? So that's yeah. one issue. That's, a, that's entertainment. But they it's, can it's commiserate abuse. with each other. They commiserate with each other. And then there's the other side, which is you see somebody struggling with this, but because you recognize, oh, it's an addiction. Oh, it's part of their personality. Oh, they're not, it's not all the time. Then you look beyond needing to hold somebody accountable for transformation. Uh, and again, because you recognize, Oh, that could easily be me. Oh, I, 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 or I'm struggling with this, this, and this, there's no way I could possibly come to my brother and say, Hey, I see this happening in your life. We should, we should transform. And so you, what often, oh, sorry, go ahead. Feel, yeah. Do you feel the message that that is, is prevalent is that grace or mercy in this case is, uh, I'm going to love you the way you are. It drives you to somehow in some way, obviously in, with great compassion to say, I love you too much not to tell you that what you're doing is wrong or how you're living is right. wrong. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to articulate that. I think what we see is, hey, you're broken. So am I. Let's be broken mm-hmm. together. Yeah. Right. And I'll share my brokenness and you share your brokenness. And we'll empathize with each other's brokenness. But unless you want transformation, it's not okay for me to tell you, you should transform (laughs) or Mm -hmm. submit to Christ to be transformed because you don't want it. And because you don't want it, I'm not going to impose my beliefs on you. But the Christian faith uh, is a faith full of submission to Christ for ultimate transformation. So instead of pushing one another towards transformation, they commiserate in their own, in their own brokenness and don't move beyond that reality. Uh, Whereas when somebody, I mean, this is the self-help culture, right? Uh, when somebody who is 400 pounds because uh, they have an eating issue uh, is made fun of for whatever reason on social media, and it's a horrible thing, we call it fat shaming, right? Mm, uh, sure. And you can't shame somebody, even though I think culturally we all recognize that person's unhealthy. It'd be in their best interest to change uh, their eating habits and their exercise habits, especially if they want to have increased life expectancy. Mm-hmm. 
but it's their choice. And so we let them, we let them do that. And if we say anything to them until they publicly declare they want transformation, we become bullies, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, until transformation is wanted, our, our telling somebody that they should seek transformation, seek Christ for transformation actually sounds like bullying and, um, quite frankly, harmful hate speech <laughs> to this generation, yeah. which yeah. is crazy, right? I mean, even though we could all recognize that this would be best for that person, uh, to give them or to tell them otherwise uh, is truly degrading to them. You find that the it. resources are there to equip youth pastors quite effectively to address these things in, a, in an appropriate way? Yeah, no, not really. You mm. know, there's, the reality is, and this is just America, look at, Look at publishing houses. You're not going to get a book published unless it's something that could be a very big tech, right? Because you only have so many Christians in America that are even going to buy a book. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you're in the business to make money, which do not be confused, Christian organizations that are not, that are like for-profit organizations like Lifeware or whatever, the publishing houses, they're there to make money. <laughs> they're there yeah. to help the church, but they're there to make money. So if it doesn't make money, it's never going to see the light of day. And quite frankly, a lot of these things that uh, could provide backlash on these organizations from the rest of the world, uh, they'll never see the light of day simply because it doesn't generate income and it puts that organization. Yeah, I, I was saying that the, the necessary subjects are the ones that are, that are taboo and, right. uh, and not promoted. Yeah, because it, it's, it's not marketable. Um, hey, what are two or three things that you find yourself talking about the most when you speak at conferences, churches? First, yeah, number one, when I'm talking with church leaders, they want to know how they can get the next generation involved in their church, like period. Like, how do we do this? How do we get them engaged in the church? Yeah, that's good. Uh, and I talk about that a lot, and I don't have another 50 minutes to give you <laughs> the, the, a couple of steps you could take. But churches want to know, and I think that's a great question that leaders are asking. How do you get the next generation involved in the church uh, and recognize that they are part of the church today? They're not absent from the church currently. They're just in your youth ministry or they're in a family, but they're not actively engaged. The key word is finding or the, the, the really the key idea in this is finding ways to help teenagers know what their spiritual gifts are and how those gifts are used in the body of Christ. You can do that as a local church. You can then start figuring out how to plug them in uh, right. and get them engaged in your church in the right way. Uh, probably the second thing I speak on uh, more than anything else is how do we help uh, students experience Jesus? So we have, most of us have grown up in a, a modern culture where education trumped, you know, so we would teach, 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 teach. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how we expected people to experience Jesus. Our culture has shifted. Uh, we are now an emotional culture, mm -hmm. way more emotive uh, in terms of how we want to experience Christ, which is why Hillsong, Bethel Music, everybody's blowing up you know, all over the place, they're providing emotional experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, and so how do we teach in such a way that helps teenagers emotionally experience Christ? I think it's becoming uh, mm, a much larger conversation yeah. mm. uh, for sure. And then, you know, the third thing that is really this relativism, this relativism issue, how do we help students cling firmly to Orthodox faith in a culture that is going to destroy it? Uh, and seek to put it down. And I really believe, now this is the prophetic side, and this is, you can take this for what you want, <laughs> okay? Uh, I am not hopeful that there will be a great revival in America. I'm not a pessimist. I'm just not hopeful. I don't see that as part of God's plan for America. Uh, the American Christianity, the evangelical nature on a mass level, I just don't see that being the preferred future for the church in America. Uh, I really do see sometime in the next 50 years 
declassification of uh, pastors in terms of you know the state and the church. I don't think that the the church will have a very high standing publicly. I believe persecution will be a uh, large part of what we begin to experience. That most pastors in the future will probably end up being bivocational unless they're part of mainline organizations that conform to cultural expectations, the culture expectations. Uh, and the church is the evangelical church, the Christ-centered church. I'm going to get rid. You know what? Forget this. Get rid of the word evangelical. The Christ-centered Orthodox Church mm-hmm. I like <laughs> is, that. is going to have to be um, much more underground. And when that happens, there will be an explosion of the Christian faith because people will want to share this hope that they have with other people in a rather hopeless uh, situation mm-hmm. because what's public won't be able to provide truth. Uh, and and that's, that'll kind of be the shift that happens. Uh, most likely. I think that'll be the shit that happens. Yeah, that's really moving. I, 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 I feel burdened when I hear that. And there's, there's also, strangely, a, a sense of excitement as well. I mean, when you think about this, the, the, most of the New Testament was written, particularly the epistles, to persecuted Christians. That's right. If we're going to relate best to the scriptures, it's going to be in the context of, uh, of persecution. And, that's exactly uh, how it's going to work. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I struggle greatly, and I think the, the Gen Z and probably the generation that will come after them will struggle greatly mm-hmm. with the affluence of the church and how inactive it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, recognizing that, man, when I read the New Testament and I see the behavior of the North American church on a, on a macro level, there is a huge disconnect. Yeah. Uh, and our churches have become so self-help driven that they are no longer about helping the needs of the world or helping the needs of your community. It's about helping the needs of me. Uh, and any young person that begins to read scripture quickly recognizes, boy, I live in a self-absorbed world. And as I read scripture, it doesn't say anything about being self-absorbed. It's everything about pouring yourself out, giving yourself up for one of those. Christ loved the churches. He gave himself up. Uh, you know, and so it's like, all right, there's, there's something wrong with the way the church is behaving and the way scripture probably really peel away from the mass church, especially if the mass church uh, conforms more to the ways of the world for cultural acceptance, governmental acceptance, whatever you want. Uh, and then they'll create their own subsect of, of probably strong Christian Christ-centered Orthodox faith. That's what I hope to see happen. Yeah, and the, and the balance there, we haven't talked about this. It'd be interesting to just get one or two comments from you that the this generation is likely going to apply the gospel in, in a lot of social, with a social you know, motivation, that social gospel can become uh, sort of the, the understanding of what our responsibility is as Christians or social justice. I mean, we're, we're seeing that a lot. How do you balance that with, again, if you talk about Christ-centered orthodoxy, that you know, the gospel is at, at its heart about being forgiven Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, we have this responsibility because you don't want it to be just about, you know, rescuing people from sex slavery and feeding yeah, the right. poor. We, we don't want to end up in the 1860s again with, you know, the Salvation Army making it or the YMCA and everything else kind of making mm-hmm. this massive push uh, to do good social works. I don't think the good social works are wrong. Uh, they're, they're actually much needed. But I will say a, a local body of believers, 25 to 100 people engaged in a relationship of helping is transformative and powerful. And now a local body of believers engaged in a relation, like an activity of helping is very different because the relationships mm-hmm. are ongoing. They're restorative, yeah. transformative, yeah. you know, everything else. So uh, I think that'll be kind of the, the tipping balance. If the church can no longer be public mm-hmm. um, in the but way they people, celebrate their activity. People are living out their faith around others. Yeah. That, 
Yeah, I, yeah, I've also, I often emphasize that myself. I think that's really important. Well, Dan, this is any other thoughts before we uh, wrap up here? Yes. Yeah, I got lots of thoughts. <laughs> I, I think I think the primary thought that I I would love to you know anybody who's leading in, in the local church ministry uh, here's here's the first thing we cannot not pray for the next generation. Mm. Mm-hmm. We pray a lot for the needs of others, which is good. We pray a lot for one another. We we, we pray a lot about the, uh, a lot of things, but the future of the church and the expression of the church. And the, the orthodoxy of the Christian faith in North America is not up to those who are 50. It's up to those who are 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so if we are not praying earnestly for them, then we will not organize our churches to be great disciple-making machines for them. Uh, we will not teach towards them. We'll, we'll get stuck in the tyranny of the urgent, which is the stuff of today, which has no bearing on the stuff 30 years from now. Uh, so we really need to begin praying for the next generation. If, I think if a pastor would commit himself to praying for the next generation of this church, even just an hour a week, which I know sounds like a lot <laughs> because our, our prayer habits are not always where they should be, but an hour a week, or you got people praying an hour a week for the next generation, you will see transformation in your church. Transformation that you've not yet experienced in your church will come by praying for the next generation. I love that. So, I love that. Yeah, good, uh, good word, good way to end. Uh, Dan, this has been exciting. It's been one of one of the more chilling and interesting and intriguing conversations I've had with my podcast. And when I say chilling, in the sense of uh, you know just the uncertainty of what's ahead, and and knowing yeah. that this is the generation that is is going to carry the torch. You know, one of my prayers. I've been sharing this a lot more openly recently. Uh, for certain reasons I won't get into here, but I, I pray every day for the end of abortion in my lifetime. Mm. And what struck me in our conversation is this is the generation that'll, that'll be uh, the, the catalyst to, to see that happen. Uh, yeah. I mean, they prayer. will, or they will not. Yeah. That right? that's, yeah. If it is going to happen, <laughs> if they it's going to happen, they, yeah. they will, or they will not. Yeah, lots on them. Uh, lots on the Gen Z's. Thank so, you, Dan. Appreciate it. You yep. did a great job. Appreciate your time. Hey, thanks Mitch. Appreciate it. Bye-bye now. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Before You Quit podcast. If you have any comments or questions about anything we've talked about today on Before You Quit, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. And also check out the website, www.beforeyouquit.us. So until next time, stay encouraged and be courageous because serving Jesus is worth all that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged. Stay encouraged.